0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. The question we're asking in tonight's study is, what is up with God repenting in the Bible? There's several passages that say that God repents or relents, and there's even a couple where it says he changes his mind, and this seems to have big implications about our theology of who God is, if we're going to take those passages kind of out of context, like a lot of people do. Um, so, we're going to look at them in context and try to understand the theology the Bible's teaching us about who God is. I'll give you some examples. So, Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky for I am sorry that I have made them that phrase I'm sorry that I have made them and this draws immediately draws your attention to the passage There's another similar passage in 1st Samuel chapter 15 In verses 11 and verse 35 it says kind of the same thing. I'll read these two verses to you 1st Samuel 15 11. I regret this is God speaking I regret that I've made Saul king for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands and Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. So God regrets that he made him king. Again, we get this in verse 35 of the same chapter for Samuel 15. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel was grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And specifically the phrase is God regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so this is like a pretty, um, by itself, like you just pull it out of context. Like anything you pull out of context can, can sound different than when it's in context, so we'll look at it in context in a minute, but it brings up questions. Did God change his mind? Did God change his mind? Like he had one opinion and then he changed he had a different opinion. Um, did, uh, does that mean God thought he made a mistake? Like if God had it to do over again, he wouldn't have made Saul king or he wouldn't have created man on the earth in the Genesis passage. We'd be like, man, if I had known that this horrible scenario would happen, I wouldn't have planned this thing in the first place. Is that what it means? Um, then it could lead to questions like, well, what if he changes his mind about me? Right? What if God just suddenly decides, he doesn't love me, doesn't care about me, that would be a problem. And of course, our Christian theology is going to ex- rebut that, but I can understand how somebody out of context would come to that question. It also asks the question, does it mean God didn't know? Did God simply not know? Was he unaware that Saul was going to be such a lousy king or that mankind was going to become so sinful? Was he simply unaware of these things? Is that why he's regretting that he had made man or had made Saul king? Further, then, it raises a question that comes to us not from within Christian theology, but a question that comes to us from skeptics of the Bible, and they say, contradiction, contradiction. God seems to know everything, right? But then these are something here he doesn't know, or they'll say, God, it says in Scripture he doesn't repent. In fact, I'll read some passages to you. Numbers twenty three nineteen. This says he doesn't repent. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? and he will not make it good. Also for Samuel 15 29, also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Now that word there is repent. In fact, it's the same word repent used in the passage I read earlier, where it says that God regretted that he made man, uh, made Saul king over Israel. The same Hebrew word. Okay, so God repents, God doesn't repent. The Bible says both. Contradiction that's the conclusion that's that's brought there um, So I'm going to answer all these kinds of questions tonight This we're going to dig into this is the topic And I think it's actually really neat and has something to do with the gospel of Christ um, which I was Maybe not surprised to discover as I was studying it, but I was um, very happy to, to see So let's look at the first Samuel passage in particular because in the first Samuel passage first Samuel 15 This is where we're gonna kind of sit for a few minutes. This passage has both statements that God does repent he, in the Hebrew word, there is translated in some translations as he repented that he made Saul king over Israel. And then it also says God doesn't repent because in 1 Samuel 15, 29, he doesn't. He's, he's not a man that he should change his mind or repent. Same Hebrew word. So he doesn't and he does. And it's in the same chapter, right there in the middle of it. Why? Well, some people would say because the author of, of 1 Samuel was so dumb that he didn't know that in the same passage where he declared God doesn't repent, he also said God does repent. Some people would have this view. I think that um, that's a little bit silly because if we're going to say that people are contradicting themselves when they're in the same context, in the same like statements, in the same like paragraphs are saying two seemingly contradictory things, what we don't realize is this is just normal methods of teaching complicated issues. You say it one way, you say it the other way and the whole purpose of saying it two ways is because you're trying to teach a complicated topic. Think about it this way. We have passages such as in the book of John. John chapter 1, where it says in verse 1, the word was with God, the word was God. Wait, but wait, is he with God or is he God? Which one is it? No, no, no. It's both because you have to understand the identity of who the second person of the Trinity is. He's God, but he's also in relationship with the Father. Ah, so he's with and he is God. Later in, first, in chapter 1 of John, we get the statement that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word is God he's with God he's in relationship with God yet. He became flesh because Jesus is divine and human He's a second person of the Trinity and he's also human truly human And so this isn't a contradiction. These are two different truths being brought side-by-side side that corrects us from getting into error That's what first Samuel is doing for Samuel 15 teaches God doesn't repent teaches God does repent when you look at it more closely you see it's explaining to us that God repents in a sense but not as a man repents. So that when the term repent is used of God, it's not what it means when you repent. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 29 again. It says, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Again, that's the same same Hebrew word for repent. In fact, many translations just translate it repent across the whole chapter because it's the same word. This is the truth, God's not going to repent because he's not a man or he doesn't repent as a man repents. A man repents when he's like, oh, oof, I really blew it. Uh, I'm going cha- to stop doing what, that bad idea of mine. I'm going to do a better idea now. I've repented. I've turned. That's not what God's doing. This is the major difference between human repentance and God's repentance. So he's not repenting in that sense. He's not changing his mind due to the lack of character or follow through. God repented because he just didn't have the guts to do what he said he was going to do. because he didn't have enough follow-through to do what he said he was going to do. It's not that. It's also not something else. It's not God changing his mind due to new information. Those are the two human elements of repentance that we're not seeing in the divine repentance. Humans, we change our mind due to either new info or a a regret of bad behavior, and God's not doing either of those things. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, same book, we're in context here, they ask God for a king. Israel says, God we, God, we want a king to be like the other nations around us. And God's like, you're rejecting me as your king when you ask for this king. But God provides them with a king. And he provides them with a warning. And in short, you read for Samuel 8, you can see it for yourself. But in short, he says, and this king's not going to work out well for you. That's the bottom line, right? This is not going to be a good ending. This king's going to do bad things. And then, lo and behold, Saul doesn't work out. And then God's like, I regret that I made him king. Well, it's not like God didn't know Saul would be a lousy king. He knew it. He planned on it. He predicted it. So it's not a lack of knowledge. It's not as though God's discovering something. God already knew it. Keep in mind, this is all in context of 1 Samuel. So we can't say 1 Samuel means God's discovering something new about Saul. He feels bad about his bad former decisions. And then he's making a new different decision because the new information made him realize something he didn't know before. That's not the case. Uh, 1 Samuel seems to rule that out in context. And ripping things out of context is just how you get bad theology. This is how I can create my bad theology. But looking at it in its flow of context in the scripture, we get better theology. I think first Samuel 15 gives us like our core one of a couple key passages for understanding the idea of God repenting or changing his mind. And that is he doesn't do it like a human does it, right? Not for lack of knowledge, not for uh, having made a poor decision you know, or lack of character, not for those kinds of things. It's for something else. There's something else going on. But let me answer sort of a side question here. Um, did God error? Did God make a mistake when he made Saul king or when he created man on the earth? Is that what these things mean in Genesis and for Samuel? Was that a big mistake? I think what we can say is, the, if, if, if I can say God planned even on those mistakes— Then it wasn't that kind of error. It wasn't that kind of thing he's talking about when he says I repent And we can say that God knew about and planned those mistakes for one, we have God's general uh, foreknowledge of all things And we can I've done whole studies on this topic I'll do more in the future because I want to tackle the topic of what's called open theism in much more depth But for today, I'll just say God God knows all things We have this as like a firmly established biblical reality that God knows all things. So we read the context of God's I regret I made Saul king in context of the fact that he knew it all all along but there's a couple specific passages that speak of God's plan and it relates to the Genesis one in Genesis God regretted that he made man on the earth think about that if I take that at face value in like the human sense the human sense not the divine how does this apply to God but how would this apply if a human said it then he's like well it was really a bad idea to just make you humans in the first place I shouldn't have done it that's how a human would mean it, but God doesn't repent like a human. How do I know that's not the case? Because God had intended and planned the fall of man all along. And we have scripture to support this. And for, in uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, it says that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, that's his agenda, his purpose, and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Not for all eternity, from all eternity. Meaning that the intention when Adam and Eve were made was Christ. With the creation of man, Jesus was already in mind. The the coming of Christ, the salvation that we have, the gospel was all planned out ahead of time. If that's the case, and, and we're thinking when God sees the sinfulness of man, he regrets making man. But wait a minute, when he made man, he already had the plan for not only the sinfulness of man, but for the salvation of man. It was all encompassing, planned out. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have another scripture that says the same thing. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Wait, I'm chosen, you're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, which would be before Adam, right? Right? But Christ, being chosen in Christ, incorporates the fall. It incorporates awareness of your own identity, of your existence. So all of the actions that would lead to, you know, Kirk sitting right there, you know, and existing in this world. Certainly Saul's failures to like take out the Amalekites, like certainly that is included in God's full awareness of all things. So God's awareness and his agenda and his plan, they go back to before the foundation Of the world. In fact, it says in Ephesians here, in love that God predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This means the cross and the adoption through through Christ was all part of the agenda to start with. And that cross thing, that that whole cross event includes the awareness of all the sins of people. And that was the plan originally. So we don't see God here in Genesis saying, I wish I'd never made man because I didn't know about this major sin issue that was going to be happening. No, because Jesus is already planned out, including your individual participation in Christ is already planned out. So I would say this, God grieves not in the sense of, I wouldn't have done this if I knew what would come of it. But as in this, I grieve for what you have made of what I have given. God provides these blessings and we mess it up with our sin. And God's genuinely grieving in that moment over what man is doing but he's not thinking, oh, this ruins my plans. Oh, like like Jesus is like the backup plan. I guess I'm... It's going to have to happen. We're going to have to do this whole thing. Like I didn't know there was going to come to this, but this cross thing, it's like it's really going to have to be. Uh, but no, it was the agenda all along. So on one side of the coin, this is what First Samuel's giving us these two sides of the coin. We have God regretting in context of man's choices. And this is what we'll see consistently. We're going to look through like 11 passages of God regretting uh, repenting or relenting in a minute, but we'll see it's always in context of man's choices. It's always in context of man's choices. God's really responding to your decisions, your choices. When you sin, it really grieves his heart. Like this is a personal God, a a present with us God, who's not just aloof, unaware of what's going on, disconcerned with what's going on. It's not as though he has such great power that he's just distanced from us and doesn't care. But he cares about our actual situations, what we're going through, the sins we commit cares deeply. So God regrets in context or grieves for what we've made of the the things he's done. Um, But on the other side of the coin, he has foreknowledge and he has a sovereign plan already to deal with those things that we're going through. So I think we see two sides of the coin there. Samuel, hey, I'm going to give you this king. He's going to be a lousy king. Gives him the king. God's like, it breaks my heart that he's such a lousy king. It uses the terminology, I regret that I've made Saul king, but this was part of the agenda all along. So we get two sides of the coin. I think there's a passage that explains this in Jeremiah 18. This is another key passage, I think, for getting this concept. So, Jeremiah 18, verse 5, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, this is God speaking, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm sitting out a prophet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin you. But if they turn, then I will turn from that plan. If they turn, I will turn from that plan. Verse 9, or... At a moment, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it, which means bring blessings on it, right? If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds." so God's repentance here is, is in, in the sense of his posture here's my posture towards you I'm going to bless you oh you're going to sin, sin, sin okay I'm now going to curse you here's my posture I'm going to curse you oh you're going to turn from your sin you're going to turn to me I'm going to bless you that's just that's the context it's not that God's changing it's that we're changing it's think of it like this if I placed a turn off all the lights in the room and I put a flashlight in the room and then I just like cement this thing in place so it's like Thor's hammer like you just can't move this thing it will not be moved And then we walk around the room in circles. And sometimes we're in front of the flashlight. We're in the light. We can see we're in the presence of the light of the flashlight. Other times I'm behind the flashlight. I'm in the dark and I I can't see my presence around me. I don't see any of these things. And it's us that are changing. I'm going from the light to the dark. And I could say in some sense, well, the flashlight, from my perspective, is turning around. But from another perspective, it's staying exactly the same. And that's what God's showing us. His relenting. Is him staying the same in his posture towards sin and us going from sin to repentance, sin to repentance, and that bringing us to darkness or light. So that's one way of, of looking at this. I think that makes sense. So there's principles we can get from this passage in Jeremiah, this kind of key passage on this, that this is the explanation in the Bible for God's repentance because it's from God. It's like, God's like, here's what I mean when I say I repent. I mean, you changed. I won't kill you. But he's not even changing there. His posture is the same, isn't it? In one sense. So he does repent or relent in that sense, but it has a context. It's always related to the behavior of man changing for better or for worse. And then so, God's response to them is genuine. Why is this? Is it because God changed his mind? No. In fact, it's based on consistency. That's why he can predict it. And if you repent, I'll repent of the harm. And if, and if you, you do good, I'll, you know, repent of this or that. It's, it's like, it's related to the behavior of mankind. For better or worse, that's verses 7 through 10 right there. If he speaks concerning a nation to pull it down, but the nation turns from its evil, he'll relent. If he speaks how he's going to bless it, and then they do evil instead, he's going to relent of the, of the good, repent of the good thing that he would have done. The application is this. God will actually judge and deal with all of us according to the way we live. Like he's actually going to deal with us. But here's this beautiful application. He allows you turns. That's the application. He allows you turns. He allows you to change so that that fate that's going to befall you will not will not fall on you. This is beautiful and this connects to the gospel of Christ is that here we have a world in rebellion to God and this message is going out. No. Yep You're gonna be destroyed, but turn but turn you turn from sin and I'll turn from destroying you. That's the message. In fact messages of God's wrath are always meant to turn us to God's grace They're meant to get us to change our mind. They're meant to be a wake-up call. Like it was with Nineveh when Jonah went there. And it woke them up and they repented and they were saved. Here's an example in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 30. God speaking to Israel, he says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Each according to his conduct declares the Lord, declares the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. This is interesting because interesting, in Ezekiel, we find God's like, you're going to go to these people, but they're not going to listen to you. So God already knows they're not going to listen. He still sends out the message, turn so that I won't destroy you, because it's a genuine offer. Here we have God's sovereignty and God's, fr- and the free will of man really working together in scriptures. They're not like a combative thing, but they're working actually together. So if you repent in that human way, God will repent in that divine way. If you repent, uh, I, I really made a mistake Lord, I, I'm going to quit my sin, God repents in the divine way. Well then in my consistency, in my goodness, I will, I will allow you back into the light. That's a different thing. Okay, let's go through, um, these are approximately 11 examples of how God is going to repent in Scripture of something he was about to do in the future. So we're just going to like systematically move through these examples, and I think we'll find them enlightening as to their application. Is something I started studying just to answer the question, but I see in it um, pictures of Jesus Christ that uh, I think is really neat. So the first one is Exodus 32. In Exodus 32 verse 12, it says, I'm going to read through verse 14. It says, Why should the Egyptians speak saying, oh, by the way, let me give you the background a little bit, right? They've left Egypt. God brought them out of bondage, all the plagues and all this stuff. But the um, Israelites are rebelling against God. And God tells Moses, I'm just I'm done. I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. Right? And so here's the response and here's what Moses says. Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel your servants whom you swore to whom you swore by yourself and said to them I will multiply your descendants and as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, out of context, you would be like, wait, what? God's like, I'm going to do this? And he like, you talked him down. Like Moses just talked him down. That could be your perspective. Or if you see God's sovereignty in things and his foreknowledge of all things, you see that God set this whole thing up to teach us all lessons. He has Moses, the guy he picked. Right? If he really wanted to destroy them, you think he'd tell Moses? He'd be like, you're dead. Like, I don't have to tell anybody. This whole thing was planned out. Like, just like with Abraham offering Isaac, we'd offer him. But he knows all along you won't let it happen. He's drawing a picture of Jesus Christ and his, his sacrifice and his offering for us. Here, he's drawing us a picture also of Christ. Here's the point. If not for the intercession of Moses, who is a type of Christ, who is fulfilling the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Moses is appealing to, if not for this guy's intercession, the people would be destroyed. If not for Jesus' intercession, you'd be destroyed. He's the one who goes to God on your behalf. Here's another passage where God repents or relents. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 16. God's destroying. He's got this angel destroying various, various people, but when the angel reaches Jerusalem, it stops. It says here, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity, the Lord relented from the calamity, and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it's enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And of course, all this other neat stuff happens in the passage, we don't have time to get into, but, but here, there's destruction, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and when it reaches Jerusalem, it's like, nah, stop, stop, not, not here, don't do it anymore. This is similarly communicated in First Chronicles 21. So here's like a parallel passage. Let me read this verse to you. Just add it to your mind and I'll, I'll offer a point we get from it. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Orna, the Jebusite, just a different pronunciation of the same name. Here's the point, I think. The last one was, if not for the intercession of Moses, who's like Christ, they would have been destroyed. Here, if not for Jerusalem, which happens to be the place of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, destruction would have continued. But destruction stops right where Jesus Christ will be interceding for the people of God. I don't think that that's just a coincidence. This is in God's plan. Just like when Abraham offers Isaac right there in Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, he says, in the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Like this is the place where God's going to provide provide the sacrifice. So there's a Christological application there. In Psalm 106 verse 45 we have another passage. And he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. Speaking of God not destroying the people of Israel. He could have just wiped them out entirely. Well, he judged them but he didn't ruin them. Here's the point. If not for God's covenant they would have been destroyed. God's covenant is ultimately all about Christ. Christ. Think about this. The, the parallel, you know, here in what keeps God from destroying his people. Oh, it's the mediator. Oh, it's the place of Jerusalem where Christ offers his sacrifice. Or it's the covenant, which is the thing that leads us to Christ. In fact, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes. All the covenants, all the promises of God are yes. And in him, amen to the glory of God through us. So we have these three things so far in these three passages relating to Christ. As I was studying this, I thought... Are all of these pictures of Christ? Are all these related to Jesus? Is the thing that stops the judgment of God always going to be in some way, you know, typologically related to Christ? But let's, let's read on. Jeremiah 18.8, here's another one of these passages. It says, If the nation which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I've planned to bring on it. I think the point here is, even though there's calamity being brought, human repentance is something that can change that. It's not even about them be doing good works exactly. It's about that change of heart that they would turn. If you turn, God will turn. This means, of course, it doesn't depend on God changing. It depends on man changing. That this man-side repentance is a different thing than what God's doing. Let me read a few more of these. Jeremiah 26.3 Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I'm planning to do to them because of their evil deeds. If they'll listen, then I, then I will get to repent. If, if they will repent, I can't. Jeremiah 26:13 Now therefore amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he's pronounced against you. And again, God's being actually consistent here, you see? He's always willing to pull his hand of wrath off people who repent. That's the message. That's the message. Jeremiah 26:19 This is speaking of Hezekiah. It says about Hezekiah, did he not fear the Lord? And entreat the favor of the Lord, and the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he'd pronounced against them. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves, meaning their continued rebellions, not like Hezekiah, uh, because they won't repent. They're going to force God's hand of judgment to come upon them. But Hezekiah, he turned, and so God turned from the wrath he was going to bring on to them. Another one, Joel chapter 2. These are all similar, they're all about, they're all about human repentance. Joel 2 verse 13 says, And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting, repenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This means that there's like this this access to God's changing from wrath towards you to grace towards you the thing that's on your side is repent this is the gospel i mean this is the gospel we have the mediator we've got the covenants of god we've got jerusalem and we've got the human part repent you need to just repent in jeremiah 42:10 it says if you will indeed stay in this land then i will build you up and will not tear you down and will plant you and not uproot you for i will relent concerning the calamity that i have inflicted upon you this is another example where they just to obey god just stay just stay in the land where God's telling them to go in Babylon. Just stay there, just be there, and obey God. So it's not about God changing his mind. It's it's about their position towards wrath or grace uh, being changed based upon their willingness to obey God. Will you turn from what you're doing and just submit? That's the idea. There's two passages in Amos that talk about this. They speak of God, quote, changing his mind. Amos 7.3 and seven 7.6. Let me read them to you. This is the stuff I'll get, you get on like an atheist website when they're just sort of collating all these verses that are meant to contradict themselves. These verses come out of context. Amos 7 3 says, The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, says the Lord. Verse 6 of Amos 7, The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. And then there you go, God, God changes his mind. And if we think of it as a human, as if God's repenting as a human, again, that's a problem. But if we realize there is a different kind of divine repentance that's entirely different than the human sort of thing, it changes it for us. Let's read it in context. Amos 7 verses 1 through 6. We'll get the whole thing. Thus says the Lord, uh, thus the Lord God showed me, excuse me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was, um, was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished Eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? So it's a disaster on Israel because here they gather their crops right after they're ripe. They gather them, but no, no, locusts come in and they destroy them. So then that whole year of crops is ruined. So he says, Amos is, you know, says, Lord, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? Verse three, the Lord changed his mind about this. This shall not be, said the Lord. Wait, so God shows Amos a dream. Here's what's going to happen. Amos is like, oh Lord, I beg you, please don't let it happen. And God goes, okay, I won't let it happen. Do you think this was not God's plan all along? Like, why did he show Amos? So Amos would pray. So he could not do it. Let's read on. Verse 4. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by the fire. By fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. So it's another another vision or insight about the destruction by fire. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? Like your people can't handle this wrath. The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. The application here is, is I think, pretty simple. Um, I know it's not, not going to satisfy perhaps like a hardened critic, you know, and they're uh, really stubbornly in their views. But what God's doing is he's showing us I'm going to show you wrath. I'm going to have a mediator who goes out and and appeals and prays for for that to not happen and then it doesn't happen. This happens immediately in context, one after another, two in a row. God appointed Amos. He showed Amos the vision. He had Amos pray. He said, I will not cause the harm. So when God's changing his mind, it's not like a human changing their mind. That's my point. In the context, it seems it's a a lot more like there's a, there's a version of God changing his mind which is just him changing of like that posture of wrath to the posture of grace and it's either been you know a mediator um, in this case with Amos he's a mediator which like all the prophets they picture Jesus Christ uh, Jesus is the one mediator between God and man like 1st John chapter 2 verse 1 says if, if we sin we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous though my sins calling out for judgment I have Jesus like Amos saying oh no Lord Mike is too small don't destroy him don't destroy him, and I have Jesus being that interceder for me. Is that a word, interceder? Intercessor. Intercessor. There you go. I'm like, interceder, I'm pretty sure that's like some sort of, some sort of like joint that you make when you're doing like wood craft, which might also be called carpentry, maybe. It's been a long weekend. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go to one more passage, Jonah 4, 2. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. It says, He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. In this passage, it's clear that Jonah's like, God's relenting, God's repenting, God's changing of his mind is a positive quality in his character that he's kind to those who repent. He's gracious to those who appeal to his mercies. That's the idea. Um, Now, this is a really good example of this playing out because Jonah, in the book of Jonah, he goes to Nineveh to warn them about God's judgment. It's going to happen unless they repent. And Jonah, he tells us here at the end of the book, in Jonah 4, he's like, I knew this would happen because Jonah hates the Ninevites. He wants them to die. And he's like, I knew this would happen. This is why, as a prophet, it's my job to get people to repent so the bad news won't happen. Like that's my task. That's my hope. That's my job as the prophet. Give you bad news. Tell you to repent so it won't happen. It's kind of like preaching the gospel sometimes, <laughs> you know, and, um, and Jonah's like, I, this is exactly why I don't want to go to those people because I would really just like to watch them burn, okay? I just want them to die. And Jonah hated them and he hated them for good reason. The Ninevites were some horrific people who had done some horrible things to people that Jonah knew and loved, right? It's to be going to the people who tortured, you know, your relatives kind of thing to preach repentance. And so it was a rough thing for him. Um, But God is gracious and God is loving beyond what he realized. And what happens? Nineveh actually repents. This is what Jonah says in, uh, the book of Jonah says in chapter 3 verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. That was them. They were repenting like, you know, he's going to kill us. Let's just do whatever he wants. Okay, let's just, let's just yield our hearts, yield our lives. Maybe he'll turn from that wrathful anger because our hearts changed because our lives have changed and they go on when God saw their deeds Jonah 3 10 that they turned from their wicked way then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it this is a perfect picture of it God's agenda all along was for them to repent Jonah knew it that's why when he got the message he fled now if he thought God's just going to destroy them he would have gone straight to Nineveh. Suckers! You know, right? Because that, that would have been his, his hope. But he knew all along that the message of God's judgment was the hopefulness of it, is that it gets you to turn so that you might be saved. And that's what they ended up doing. So there's two key things in all these passages that lead to God averting, having his judgment averted. Maybe there's more than two. Maybe there's like actually three, if we include Jerusalem. Um, One of them is a mediator, some kind of mediator, some individual who goes between God and the people, who's just appealing to God for his mercy and his grace. And we got Moses, we got Amos, right? These mediators that turn God's heart, so to speak, and they picture Christ, the ultimate mediator, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We even get this in Hebrews, how Moses is a mediator, Christ is that much more a mediator. The other one is human repentance. Human repentance is the thing that turns God's heart. So we have the mediator, we have human repentance, we have Christ, and we have repentance. We have the gospel message. Here's Jesus. He's provided the way. Here's the message of what's coming. Turn and be saved. This is just the gospel message. The third one was Jerusalem itself, which I think also appeals to um, to the gospel um, or the promises of God, which appeals to the gospel. All these things relate to ultimately to the gospel. But why then, why the language? Why, Why is it such language, this kind of still jumps out and hangs in my mind. God changed his mind, you know. Um, God repented, relented. Why those terms being used? I think that probably the best, uh, there, you could do an analysis of the words themselves. In, in Hebrew, they do seem to be flexible terms. Um, Hebrew has a smaller vocabulary than we do in English. And so they, they, they uh, their words do double duty, okay. They'll have the same word that has more functions in language than a word that we're using because we have more specialized words for those things. It's like when I was growing up, dude was like the ultimate word. Dude, it, it, it you were sad. Dude. You were happy. Dude. Right? You were shocked. Dude. It was just, you know, you forgot someone's name. Hey, dude. I remember my friend's mom would say dude and he'd always like, mom, don't say dude. It was like it really bugged him when she said dude. I still say it every once in a while. I'll catch myself saying dude and I'm like, oh, I feel, I don't know, I feel like kind of silly when I do it now, but whatever, dude. So there's, there's an element of that, I think, that's there. It's just that, you know, words, you know, are kind of doing double duty in some cases with Hebrew, but there's something I think that is probably more on target for explaining why these terms are being used, and it's, it's a term anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is where you get like, you know, anthropos, like man, which means man, and morph, like I'm, I'm assigning a human quality to something that's not human, just so I can better explain it to other humans, that is the idea. We do this with, um, with animals, we do use anthropomorphisms, we talk to, to about animals like they are humans, like we give them more opinions than they really have about things, you know, sometimes and stuff. If you define anthropomorphism, it is just that, when you describe non-human things as if they were humans, and the reason you do it is to better understand them from a human perspective. That is the reason why we do it, to better understand them from a human perspective. This is what we do when we say that God has a hand in scripture. Scripture says God has a hand or that his arm is outstretched to his people. It's not as though there's this 12 mile long giant arm reaching out to to God's people. And nobody thinks this. It's super obvious to us when we see God's arm is outstretched or his ear. His ear is turning to the people. Like I'm not like, picturing, you know, that that thing happening with God. I realize that he, he inclines his ear to them, that rather he's giving them special attention in response to their prayers. I, I realize I'm giving, I'm doing an anthropomorphism thing. We read about God whistling in scripture. I'm not actually, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not actually thinking, like if we only had space telescopes back then, we would have like, we would have heard the, it was a really bad whistle. I, my mouth's too dry, so I can't whistle, but we wouldn't have heard this like in the telescopes, like, oh, we've received whistles from God. Um, actually, that wouldn't even work in space anyways, right? Still, nobody would hear it. I don't know, science, something. I think we understand, though, that these terms, when used of God, they mean something similar to, but different than the way they're used of people. That's the nature of anthropomorphism. It means something similar to, but different than when you use the term of people. God's arm is outstretched different than my arm is being outstretched to you. Um, God's turning his ear different than me turning my ear but similar, similar. The idea of God repenting, the terminology, it always seems to occur at God's change of posture due to man's change of behavior or a mediator of some kind, right? It just about always happens though more often than not, more than anything else, it's man turns so God turns too. That's the concept Man is wicked, so God goes from blessing, you know, I'll be fruitful and multiply. This is Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. I'm blessing you. I'm blessing you. Man's super wicked, so God turns, I'm going to destroy you and start over with Noah. But the blessing, the ultimate blessing still there, the plan was all in place the whole time. Israel's in sin, so Israel's general blessings turn into, I'm going to humble you, and then when they turn back again, God goes, now I'm going to bless you. God's actually being consistent because of the sin of man. So here's the, my final analysis, then we'll go to your guys' questions and thoughts. This is, this is the thing for tonight because I didn't have time to prepare the Mark study, <laughs> which we'll do next week. Um, did God change his mind? Uh, no, not in the human sense, but in a divine sense, we anthropomorphically talk about God changing his mind. What he did change was his posture towards people because their behaviors were becoming more wicked or they turned from the wickedness. Does it mean that God thought he made a mistake? No, God didn't think he made a mistake. The whole thing was in God's plan all along. He's using all of it. It just means that God really cares and is really interacting with us in real life right now. You know, I experience this moment like it's real. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm really here. <laughs> I'm really experiencing this stuff. And this stuff reveals that God is too. He's experiencing these things with us. You know, and, and he says, you know, mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. I think God does. I think he's mourning with us who mourn and weeping with us who weep and I think we're seeing this happen in real time as well. God really cares. So if you're worried, what if God changes his mind about me or you? No, that's not gonna happen. You're in Christ. You're in the love of God in the story. Does it mean that God didn't know? No, no, because he even predicts this stuff. He even predicts that the king's gonna be a problem and then he he grieved that the king's a problem. He predicts, you know, in in uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, he's like, They're not going to listen to you, but go and tell them if they'll listen. I'll change my mind about them. They really have the chance to change, but I already know what they're going to do. I already know the choice they're going to make. So I think we're seeing God's sovereignty and human responsibility or free will that are coexisting in these exact concepts and passages. So God knows what you'll do, and he knows what he'll do in response to what you'll do, and he knows what he would have done if you would have done something else. So God really responds to you. And that, that might be the, the biggest takeaway, is that in your life right now, you might have compromise, you know, that, or, or, or you're not even in, in Christ, you're not even Christian. And you don't realize how important it is that right now, today, you repent of those things and you turn to God. And then God will respond to that repentance. Whether it's as a Christian, compromise in your life, in your walk, don't, don't wait on it. Don't just hang on it. Don't just be like, I'll just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait because you're going to keep reaping what you sow and it'll get worse and bigger. But if we turn our hearts to God right now, then his posture towards us and those things changes too. So it's like, there's just a sense of urgency that your life is really interacting with God who made all things and is right with us in the moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you're here. You're with us. We thank you, Lord, that you're your heart um, is for people to turn from sin. To turn from compromise. Self-destructive things like you said to, the, to Israel. Why? Why will you die like this? Just turn from your wicked ways and live. And I feel as though you're saying that to us every day. Even right now. That though our, our future might have problems coming our way because of compromise because of sin or because the worst of all, the actual just rejection of the gospel of Christ, that there is yet right now the opportunity to turn to you and see everything totally change. And we're grateful for that. We're so grateful for the mediator we have, for the intercessor who goes before us, for the one who died there in Jerusalem, uh, there where God provided the sacrifice for us. We're just so grateful, God. We pray for wisdom to understand uh, how the scriptures talk about you with sometimes human terms but the scripture yet is careful to differentiate you from humans in important ways. And we pray we would just have uh, a theology that represents the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.